You're listening to Catholic Chicago. Ahead, the Archdiocese of Chicago brings you programs about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Welcome to Catholic Chicago. Good morning. This is I'm Joyce Duriga. I'm the editor of the Chicago Catholic, and this is Beyond the Headlines. It's where we take a look at um, Beyond the Headlines. We take a look, a closer look at the stories that we run in the paper and the people behind them and the people doing the good work for the church in Chicago. So today we have as our guest Dennis McNamara. He's director of the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College in Kansas. He was here in Chicago for two decades at Mundelein Seminary and is an expert in church architecture in Chicago and around the country. He holds a BA in history of art from Yale University and a PhD in architectural history from the University of Virginia, where he concentrated his research on the study of ecclesiastical architecture of the 19th and 20th century. While he was up at Mundelein, he also served as an academic director and associate professor at the Liturgical Institute. And he still works with them now. Um, they're on the podcast called The Liturgy Guys, which is fun if you can check that out. He's also the author of How to Read Churches, A Crash Course in Ecclesiast- Ecclesiastical Architecture, and Heavenly City, the Architectural Tradition of Catholic Chicago. Welcome, Dennis. Happy to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. You're welcome. So today what we're talking about is Mundelein Seminary is turning 100 this year. And when I first came to Chicago, I got a tour from Father Thomas Bama of the of the campus, a mini tour. And he it really struck me how he talked about how Cardinal George Mundelein at the time was very who started the seminary up there was very deliberate in how he wanted to design the seminary and it was very it had to relate to the culture at the time, and it has it's, it's all this depth. I mean, it's a gorgeous campus uh, for the listeners or the viewers on YouTube. If you get a chance, if you haven't been up there, go up there. It's gorgeous. Tons and tons of acreage. There's a lake. There's a walking path. Um, it's just very peaceful. So when we did um, some coverage about a month ago up on the Centennial Bundeline, this is one of the stories that I wanted to do, and we had Michelle Martin do it. So Dennis, as as an expert in church architecture, can um, we interviewed him for one of the stories about the meaning behind the seminary. So, so can you talk a little bit about, like, first of all, who, who was Cardinal George Mundelein? Well, he was uh, Archbishop of Chicago, obviously, but he was also the first cardinal of Chicago and the first cardinal off the East Coast. So, you know, there had been cardinals in Baltimore and New York and Boston, but there had never been one off the East Coast because the cities were not important enough. And so they call him the first cardinal of the West. That's what they called him in his own day. It's funny to think of Chicago as the West, but in, the, in his day, that was considered a 
a big deal, and Chicago had really arrived. You know, he was born in New York and grew up in Brooklyn, and he was a priest of the Diocese of Brooklyn. But he was one of these guys who did everything big and everything early. You know, he finished college at the age of 17 with high honors, and he finished seminary before he was old enough to be ordained, so they had to send him to Rome uh, to study. And um, he became the auxiliary bishop of Brooklyn at the age of 37, which was the biggest diocese, one of the biggest dioceses in the country, and then Archbishop of Chicago at 43, which is, is very young, you know, for a big C like that. And uh, just a dynamo, intellectually very interesting. He was, you know, maybe not buddies, but friends with the president of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt, who was an old New York, you know, old money sort of Protestant uh, representative of that culture. And to have the archbishop of a major Catholic city in the White House with the president was sort of a big deal. It would be today, and it really was then. Sure. And he had lots of ideas and lots of things he got accomplished. Yeah, that always sticks in my brain because we have a picture from in our archives of him in the the car with the president at the time. So I've always think about him was friends with the president. But you're right that it depends on on the time and and um, so one of the things right out of the gate when he came to Chicago, he said he wanted to create one of the greatest seminaries in the United States. And can you kind of talk about that vision of what he had and what he meant? Well, you know, there were big seminaries in the East Coast, of course, because they were older uh, cities. Chicago didn't have a seminary. Now, they had the University of St. Mary of the Lake, the original campus, which was right down next to uh, Holy Name Cathedral. And in fact, the name of the seminary chapel, the college chapel, was the Holy Name Chapel, which is why Holy Name got its cathedral's name. You know, it was originally St. Mary's, as old St. Mary's uh, tells us. Um, and that eventually, you know, went under for various reasons, burned in the fire, and then was uh, financially insolvent. So imagine you're in a growing city of Chicago, it's booming, seminarians are coming out the windows practically, and you don't have a seminary to send them to. And of course, the Poles were going to Polish language seminary, and the Germans were going to German language seminaries, and the English speakers were going to the East Coast, and then they, when they came back, they didn't know each other. And so he just wanted to have a place where the education could be at a very high standard, that Chicago's national groups could get to know each other, and that people could learn what it meant to be an American, which sounds a little silly to us now, but you can imagine you come off the boat at 12, you go to seminary at 18, maybe you don't speak English yet, you have to go to a national language seminary, and um, I guess it was a genuine concern that Americans should know what America was about, and he wanted to, uh, to do that. And this was around world, the start of World War One, to put it in context, right? Like the, to get my years right, so that right. So we were getting an influx of immigrants, and a lot of them were Catholics. So, and one of the things that I'm always interested in is that there was anti-Catholicism at the time, and so some of that played into um, the architecture, which we can talk about. But are you able to talk a little bit about the? that environment for Catholics at the time and what they were experiencing? Sure. You know, Catholic immigrants in general um, often are not at the top of the social hierarchy or they would have stayed where they were, right? So mm -hmm. they're looking for a better life. Maybe they're not highly educated. And so there are stereotypes that grow out of things that are sometimes true. You know, if you think what the back of the yards was like, it wasn't the most clean, sophisticated neighborhood in town. And the next generation, though, can do a little better. Maybe the next generation can do a little better. And so by the time Cardinal Mundelein comes around, he wants to show that Catholics are not only Americans, right? They speak English and they know the culture of the place where they live, which would have been concerned at that time. But also they had come to be social uh, peers with the older 
people of Chicago, the uh, presidents of the University of Chicago, and whoever thought they were the, the top of the social standing in New York, and architecture was part of that. We're not just going to have a seminary in the back of some, you know, factory building. We're going to build a campus that's going to be designed by an architect all at once. It's going to have immense property and a lake and piers that go out into the lake and everything would be at the highest level, which is what Americans were doing in general after the Victorian period. But for the Catholics to do it was uh, to say, we're here. We're not only here. We're educated, we're civilized, we're sophisticated, and we're as good as you. <laughs> that was uh, something that was important at the time. No, it is amazing, and it, it um, it's such a big part of our, our um, history here in Chicago. So it, it does have a colonial kind of look. Can you describe kind of the style, and then we can talk about um, how it was different or how it differed from the seminaries being built around that time? Sure. The sort of stereotypical New England colonial church of the 18th century uh, would have been red brick with white trim coming out of the classical traditions from uh, from England, uh, which their great architects in England were going to Rome and they were taking classical architecture back to, to England. And then the colonies did in a kind of reduced version what the what England did. And so that's, you know, the trip to Boston, you see Old North Church and all of that, you saw the postcards. Now, that was very much associated as the architecture of the patrician Protestant establishment, right? The first families of the Mayflower and the signers of the Declaration of Independence. And the architecture of Catholics was usually associated with the country they came from. So the Germans would build a kind of German Romanesque and the Italians would build some kind of Italian Renaissance thing. And the Protestant elite would move to Winnetka or something. They'd build a little colonial house to say, you know, we're the real Americans and you're not. And Mundelein took it and he said, hey, guess what? We're Americans too. And when we build a big church with a steeple that looks just like New England, we're claiming the authentic architecture of America for, for ourselves. Of course, there were lots of American architectures at this time, but in his mind, it was New England. It was the 18th century. It was colonial. And that was the way to, uh, to steal their thunder in a way. It was also enculturation. You know, he didn't have the word enculturation at the time, but to say, we're going to take up the habits and customs of the place where we live and elevate and purify them in, into the Catholic vision. So it was uh, pretty forward-looking for his time. And one of his mantras was love of God and country. Mm -hmm. Right. He spoke of that in a, in a address he gave at the dedication of St. Thomas of Canterbury Church in Chicago, which was the first colonial church, I guess. It doesn't look very colonial to us now. But it was right during World War One. Remember, Germans and Germans were not popular during World War One because of the, the German aggression, and that's when you know French fries, not French fries. Uh, what was it? Uh, sauerkraut became Liberty Cabbage and things like that. So um, to say, you are here and you love your church, but you're also American and you can love your country, and that these two things can work together, was kind of new. The experiment of American Catholicism was very different from the kind of tradition of kings and queens who took care of everything and your your catholic monarch you know america was seen as sort of secular to a lot of catholics to say you could be an american and you could be catholic at the same time was kind of a newly developed uh, thinking that mundelein came up with he and many of the other bishops at that time they were called the americanist bishops and they wanted catholics to not speak the language of their home country they wanted them to learn english it's not exactly how we do things today but it's how they were insisting on it back then because it was different, right? They were, we were, many of the Catholics were, the, like you said, the immigrants who, and the easiest way to enculturation is sort of to adopt, you know, the language and the um, 
traditions. Yeah. It was, I can't imagine what that, because they were like, they would be burning the churches. They were just, you know, that's where the the um, Irish need not apply signs came up. Mm-hmm. And, um, go ahead. One thing that, that struck me was the, the, the New World, you know, the Catholic paper, as it was called, it, had the, the cover, um, and it had the big picture of the plan for Mundelein Seminary at the top. You know, Cardinal Mundelein announces new seminary. And then one of the stories at the bottom of the first page said uh, something like, the KKK threatens to burn down Catholic churches in Peoria. And there, when, um, you know, the first St. Edmund's Church in Oak Park was, uh, was planned, you know, the, the Protestants of of Oak Park did not want a Catholic church there. They had to fight hard for it. In fact, they had to have a, a non-Catholic buy the property and sell it to a Catholic. So they had to work behind the scenes. So, you know, at, at, at one level, you think, oh, isn't it kind of cute? We're trying to play Americans. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you don't become a citizen and people are hostile to you, they don't see you as part of this nation and good as enough, and you're not educated to the level that you ought to be, then it makes life harder for everybody. And Mundelein was trying to, I think, ease the transition of Protestant, no, excuse me, of uh, immigrants into the larger culture. Do we know where that came from? It was. Do you think it's because um, he was from Brooklyn, and he was also German? Ah, so he would have experienced anti-German sentiment in the uh, in the time of World War One, and his parents were from Germany, and so he he would know what it felt like and how it and it was uh, important to be considered an equal with your with your friends and your neighbors. Yeah, so interesting. Wish I could meet him. Um, okay, we're going to take a quick break, and this is Joyce DeRiga from the Chicago Catholic talking with Dennis McNamara about the architecture at Mondelein Seminary, and we'll be right back. As you think about year-end contributions, we at Catholic Charities thank you for considering a donation. 100% of every donation goes directly to our charitable work. Every donation allows us to continue to offer programs and services that affirm, strengthen, and empower those we serve as they work toward becoming self-sufficient. We are financially independent from the Archdiocese of Chicago, and we are proud of our Platinum Guide Star rating as a nonprofit. For more than 100 years, Catholic Charities has been helping homeless, hungry, and troubled neighbors in Cook and Lake counties. We would be honored to have your support in our 2021 year-end appeal. Visit catholiccharities.net to donate or call 312-948-6087. The number again is 312-948-6087. Thank you for being partners with us in the mission of Catholic Charities. I am a seminarian. The church needs compassionate and well-trained priests to help guide each of us through life. What inspires me, what draws me always to the priesthood is continuing to see priests be a beacon of hope for other people. 
You can play a part in the education of these young men as they prepare for a life of service to others. I want to be that beacon of hope too, and it, it sets my heart on fire. To support our seminarians, make your gift at artschicago.org slash seminarian fund or call 312-534-7959. At Catholic Charities, we fight hunger in Chicago throughout the year. Our six regional offices in Cook and Lake Counties work together to offer sit-down and to-go meals to anyone in need. We deliver meals to those who are homebound, and our eight food pantries offer three to four days of food supplies based on household size. Participants in these programs have the opportunity to learn about other Catholic charity services that strengthen individuals, families, and their communities. The challenges for those dealing with food insecurity are especially great during the winter months. To learn how you can help those who are hungry in your neighborhood, visit catholiccharities.net or call 312-655-7525. That's 312-655-7525. Thank you for your generosity. back. My name is Joyce DeRiga. I'm editor of the Chicago Catholic. For the Archdiocese of Chicago, you can find us at chicagocatholic.com. This is Beyond the Headlines, where we take a closer look at some of the stories we've done in the newspaper. And recently, we did a special issue on the centennial of Mundelein Seminary. And one of the fascinating things I've always found with the seminary is that the architecture, the way Cardinal Mundelein designed it at the time, had a very clear intent it wasn't just, let's throw up some buildings. There was a reason that he did design the buildings the way he did. And so today we're talking to Dennis McNamara from Benedictine um, College in Kansas. He used to be, for 10 years, or 20 years, I'm sorry, 20 years, he was at Mundelein and um, is a professor of church architecture, has written a bunch of books on this top topic, and is kind of the local expert on Catholic architecture around Chicago and in the United States. So... Mm -hmm talking with Dennis and then so let's talk about come back to um, now the 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 other seminary I'm looking at the story that we did with you in the interviews and so other places we're building so we've got St. Charles Borromeo in Philadelphia and Kenrick in St. Louis both of which are still around today but why how was their architecture different than the um, what Cardinal Mundelein did well, in Philadelphia, they built a big classical building. The chapel looked a bit like a church right out of Rome. And in uh, Kenrick, they built this English Gothic um, place with, you know, green lawns, trying to be like an English or country monastery. And then in Chicago, we built this red brick, stone trim, white, clear glass windowed <laughs> chapel that looked like colonial New England. It actually got some people angry. It was kind of known as Mundelein's meeting house was the joke, you know. And a meeting house was the term for congregationalist churches in, in New England. And we might not 
pick up the edginess of it uh, today, where the chapel looks like a Protestant church. But back then, you know, Catholics were Catholics and Protestants were Protestants. The only thing I can imagine it might be like is if someone built a seminary chapel and made it look like a mosque. Mm. You know, to us today, it still it still carries a certain kind of uh, national and religious association. Now we're sort of used to it. We love our beautiful chapel and Mundelein, and and we walk by. But it was a big deal in its day. And in fact, Cardinal Mundelein got a letter from the rector of the seminary in Baltimore, saying he saw the pictures of the plan for the chapel and that he was lying awake three nights worrying about it because colonial architecture had not been reformed to be made Catholic enough yet. And that it stood not only for things that weren't Catholic, but also everything that was anti-Catholic. Hmm. And here was Mundelein in the belly of the beast taking what this rector thought was anti-Catholic architecture and making a Catholic chapel out of it. He really was a visionary. I mean, it's amazing and it takes a lot of courage, but he did have that kind of personality that was, you know, would, he was really hands-on, my understanding of when he was building. You know, he proved all the—I the, um, I, I went through um, when it was the anniversary of the um, Eucharistic Congress that was held up there. We went through some of the letters, and just reading his letters, I mean, he was very hands-on in what he was doing and very involved locally and nationally. So let's, let's talk about that. You mentioned the chapel. So the chapel is modeled after um, a chapel in, in New England, but mm-hmm. the— inside is different and and that's an, another thing that when I did the tour with Father Tom Bema was that he noted that uh, Mundelein was also sort not sneaky but I think it's kind of funny and sneaky so the outside of the buildings some of them may look colonial but the insides are Romans and are nod to the church can you talk a little bit about that Sure. Probably the library is the best example of that because the outside is red brick and it has a center bay with a little pediment and it looks like a New England colonial house. And then you go inside and there's marble and there's a double arcade and it's the classic Roman palace uh, courtyard. And so he's playing the game. Remember, it's not a game in the sense of just being fun. What, what he wanted was seminarians who are American in their customs, their manners, their language, but who are loyal to Rome in the heart. So he didn't want to just come and become American and lose your distinctive Catholic identity. So the buildings play that game. There's Roman features on the inside. There's Latin inscriptions on the outside. The coat of arms of the Pope, you know, the chapel itself is very much like the colonial meeting house on the inside. But then there's this great sort of painting from the Counter-Reformation on the, over the high altar, the original high altar. The Counter-Reformation were the painters, in mostly in Spain, who were cranking out paintings to, to answer the Protestant Reformation, uh, you know, usually the divinity of, of Christ or the um, Immaculate Conception or something. And so here we have a church modeled on a Protestant meeting house used by a Catholic seminary. And in it, the center painting is a painter, a painting by Francisco Zurbaran, who's a Spanish counter-Reformation uh, painter showing the, the Holy Family there. So it's, a, it's just an interesting conflation of, of events that turns to Cardinal Mundelein being very modern. And people don't think of him as modern when they look at his traditional architecture, but he's really trying to solve a current day problem in the Archdiocese of Chicago, and then do it at this very high level with very sophisticated art and uh, and architects. What do you think if he was here today, what would he, do you think he, I know that the, his ideas for the seminary were bigger than that. There were other other schools and stuff that he wanted to break out. What, what do you think he would think today? And about the, the seminary and the society, and did he accomplish his mission? Well, I think in many ways he did for his time. You know, he becomes bishop in 1915. And 
they call those the builder bishops of the early 20th century. They take nothing and they have to get something, right? So they build their first cathedral, they build their first seminary, and building, 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 building is kind of their goal. And then the next generation kind of enjoys the fruit of that. And then the next generation is kind of where we are now. We have all these big buildings in the, in the diocese and the Catholics have moved. So he would probably have to recognize in some ways that the situation in, in the city has changed. But Mundelein, I think he'd still be very proud of the campus. It's been well-preserved. The buildings have been improved and preserved largely through the generosity of the people of the archdiocese. You know, the roofs have been replaced. The stonework has been fixed. And now it's a precious kind of place. There's nothing like it anywhere in, uh, you know, Cooker Lake County. Who has 800 acres in a lake that hasn't been developed in right. Lake County these days? And so to go there is a very special thing. And to study there, to be able to pray there, it's really very, uh, very precious. And I can't stress it's not the folks who are joining us um, on listeners and those on YouTube. If you haven't gone, uh, go. there. You can go usml.edu. You can get the hours and just give someone a holler. They'll tell you when it's good to come. I think you can get a permit to walk around the campus, I think, or something like that. Like on a regular, I forget how that works. I was out there recently, um, and somebody who goes there regularly was telling me about that. But so just um, we have a few minutes left, but I wanted to touch on – you know, you did a book called Heavenly City, the Architectural Tradition of the Catholic of Catholic Chicago. What is the architectural tradition of Catholic Chicago? Well, in many ways, it's a lot of traditions. Uh, Chicago, of course, is a great architectural city. Everybody knows about Mies van der Rohe and Frank Lloyd Wright and all of that. And in many ways, if Mies van der Rohe and Frank Lloyd Wright were not sucking all the oxygen out of the room, I think the Catholic churches of Chicago would be the story of Chicago. You know, anybody who's driven down the Kennedy or the Dan Ryan, and you see all the steeples uh, popping up over all these neighborhoods. I mean, it's an amazing assemblage of incredible buildings that um, a lot of people, maybe even until recently, didn't really know about. And the architectural tradition of Catholic Chicago, the book Heavenly City, was made precisely to help people know, to rescue some of these churches that were in danger to help do some fundraising. It was based on a book called The Cathedrals and Churches of London. Mm. And uh, we had the same photographer who came over and it was really to show these immigrants largely who have this great faith with the many small contributions of many people can do really great things. And it establishes the city skyline as a Christian place. You know, there's the Methodist temple in Chicago, right in the loop that realized their church was shorter than the skyscrapers for the first time. So they started, they built this skyscraper church with a Gothic steeple on top. And I think the Catholics did it in the same way, but not in the tall building areas. And still to this day, you go to Pilsen or you uh -huh. go to any particular neighborhoods and you will see this is a Christian community. People worship here, they live here, and the architectural uh, rendition of it makes that otherwise invisible reality knowable. Uh, to our eyes, and we get to delight in it as well, to walk in one of these churches, to see marble and paintings and mosaics and sculpture and color and stained glass, and it's a real great treasure. And so even Chicago's poor, were the they were the great artistic um, clients of the day. They were the patrons in their own small way. Why does it matter? I mean, some, you know, people are like, why would we just spend that much money on a building? It's just a building, you know, and, um, and you know, you should give it to the poor regardless of the fact that the Catholic Church in the, you know, in the world is the biggest philanthropist or whatever, but why does architecture matter in liturgy, in worship? Yeah, well, architecture is part of the sacramental system of the church. We tend to think of it as the thing that keeps the rain off our head so we can do church stuff. 
but there's actually a rite of dedication of a church. It's a, it's a book that tells how you dedicate a church. And when something is dedicated, that means that it's brought into the sacramental realm. It contributes to the life of the community and the Holy Spirit is invited to dwell there. So it's not simply a skin for liturgical action, as some people uh, kind of argue. It is interesting that there are several feasts on the universal church calendar that are feasts of buildings. There's a dedication of John Lateran, dedication right. of Mary Major, and those are feasts of the Lord. Because the church building is an image of Jesus Christ in architecture. And you say, well, how can that be? Well, remember, you know, the apostles are looking at the temple and Christ says, I will tear this down in three days, raise it up. And they say, you're speaking of the temple of his body. And the church building is made of many members, just as Christ's body is made of many members. They're all rightly assembled under their headship of Christ. Uh, the church building, all the members are rightly assembled. And when they're in the right place, this image of heaven comes through. And when you go in a properly designed church, you'll see... Statues of angels and saints, not so much because we like old-fashioned stuff, but because they're part of the mystical body of Christ. They're worshiping God, too. We're worshiping with them. They're worshiping with us. When you hear the prayer, the preface that introduces the Sanctus, the Holy, 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 it always says, we worship with the angels and the saints as we cry out with joy, Holy, Holy, Holy. And so when you see angels in your church, they're letting us know that we're worshiping with them. When you see carved in stone, buds and flowers and leaves were being restored not only to the Garden of Eden of Adam and Eve, but beyond that, which is the new heaven and the new earth that the book of Revelation talks about. And so sometimes I compare it to that moment in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory when they open the door and then they walk into the place with the chocolate river and the gumdrops on the trees. They leave the world and they walk around in this fantastic place. And church architecture is supposed to do that for us. We leave the world and we enter this fantastic place, except it's not chocolate rivers and gumdrops. It's the heavenly realities heavenly that God wants us to enjoy with him forever. And we get a chance to practice it now and actually makes us ready for heaven. When we get at the gate and St. Peter says, do you belong here? Oh yeah, I've been walking around in heaven every Sunday, maybe even every day for the last 80 years. And I know how to do it. And so it contributes to the sanctification of the people of God and, and then therefore the glorification of God. Awesome. Well, De Dennis, it was a joy to speak with you. This, is, this was Dennis McNamara. Um, we're talking about the go Google him on Amazon and get his books. He's done a ton of videos. They're worth it. It'll help you worship better. My name is Joyce Duriga, the editor of the Chicago Catholic. Please check us out at chicagocatholic.com. Thank you for joining us today for Beyond the Headlines. Until next time, have a gentle and joy-filled day. Thank you.